This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. This year at Christian Chapel, we're taking time every Sunday morning to share uh, chapel praise stories, just stories of what God has done, stories of God's healing, God's salvation, God's provision. If you have those stories from your life, if you'll send them to us at praise at christianchapel.com. Each week we're reading them for for two primary purposes. One, we want to thank God for what he's done. We always want to be the people who go back and express our gratitude. And then two, each week we believe whatever God has done, there's almost always someone in the room online in our community who needs that same thing to be accomplished in their life today. So each week we read them and then we pray a prayer of thanksgiving and we pray a prayer of God, will you do it again? Um, This morning's chapel praise story is a little different. It kind of ties in with what Pastor Titus was sharing with us. Earlier in the week, he was sharing with me. um, We have 18 students and adults who are going to spend 11 days with Rubens and Steffi Cunha in Brazil. He told you everything they're going to do. We believe when they come back, they're going to have additional chapel praise stories of God's healing, God's salvation, just incredible things. I was remembering back this week to way back in the old days when I was the youth pastor at Christian Chapel and we took some of these trips. Um, and, and I just, I will never forget seeing some of our 14 and 15 year old students lay their hands on the head of a man who was clearly blind and could not see. And as they prayed, you could physically see his eyes clear. You could see his vision restored. Uh, we believe those kind of stories are going to occur next week in Brazil. And we're going to celebrate them with our youth students. Um, but today our praise story is a little bit simpler. Titus helped me remember every member of the team has a budget to raise. There are young adult leaders who took a step of faith to provide leadership for our students, parents who took time off work to serve as trip chaperones, teenagers who worked hard to raise their budget. They raked leaves, mowed lawns, babysat kids, worked part-time jobs, and participated in fundraisers to make it happen. Each participant had to raise $2,500 to cover their airfare, lodging, and food, and this morning we're celebrating that they are all fully funded. God provided in so many ways for each one of them, and we don't want to overlook the significance of his provision. It would have been easy for our students to decide the trip was too expensive, they were too young for the experience, or for mom or dad to tell them it's just not in the family budget this year. But each student and each family took a step of obedience and began to learn that when God calls you to do something, he's faithful to provide the means to do it. Our students worked, scrimped, saved, and trusted, and for 18 different team members in dozens of different ways, they have individual stories of God's provision. I know as I was reading through that, it was a great reminder for me uh, of something we, we talk about a lot, that if it's God's will, it's God's bill. And if he calls you to it, he's going to provide for you. And, and as we're, as a church, as we're in a, a position of evaluating where God is leading us, and you look around the room, and we're, we're running out of space on Sunday morning, and I can tell you uh, firsthand, all of our solutions are expensive. And so we are trusting if it's God's will, it is God's bill. And our students are a wonderful reminder to us of that today. I know there are those of us in the room that you think maybe 2,500, not a big deal. Put yourself in the position of a 15, 16-year-old broke teenager, and it might as well be a million dollars, right? And so today, we are celebrating with our students. We're going to pray prayers of thanksgiving, and we're also going to pray, Lord, will you do it again? Because I know there's financial needs in the room. I know there are dreams and visions God has put in your heart that he's putting in the heart of Christian Chapel that are beyond our current abilities. But our students are a reminder that when God calls, God provides. And so today, 
we're going to thank him for that, and we're going to pray that he'll do it again. So if you're in a space where you need some financial provision, you have some needs that you need to be met, uh, I'm going to ask you just to to join me in this prayer, and we're going to believe that he is still the God who provides. So Jesus, we thank you for providing for each one of our chapel youth students. We thank you for all of the ways that you have done that. We thank you for the generosity of their family and friends who've supported them. We thank you for their willingness to work and to sacrifice to be part of what you've called them to do. And now, Lord, as we thank you for your provision in their life, we also turn our attention towards the needs for your provision in our lives. You see the spaces, Lord, where our resources do not match the vision that you've given us. You see the places where today we've experienced unexpected bills, unknown or unforeseen financial needs. Lord, you see that all the ways that those have come at us. And today we're asking, will you remind us that you are still the God who provides? You are still the one who holds every resource in your hand. You are still the one that we can come to with every need, and you are our source of provision. And so, Lord, today we ask, would you begin to release gifts of provision in our lives? Will you begin to show us new opportunities to make money? Will you show us new opportunities to receive your goodness? Will you show us new ways where we can be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us? Lord, we want to be people whose needs are met by you and who live lives of extravagant generosity towards you and towards others. And so today, Lord, in the in this face of every financial need, in the face of every unemployment, in the face of every job rejection, we ask today, will you once again be the God who provides? You have been faithful, you are faithful, and we know you will be faithful again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Again, if you have stories, praise at christianchapel.com. We would love to hear them. Today we're continuing our way through our series through the book of Acts. We're talking about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. Before we get into that, one more quick announcement for you. Um, We, in September of this year, uh, we're going to expand to three Sunday morning services at Christian Chapel. So we're going to start that on Sunday, September 10th. Then about probably about a week and a half, two weeks from now, you'll receive a, a short little survey from us. It's going to take about two minutes. It's going to be eight to ten questions. Very simple, just helping us to kind of plan for that. So if we don't have your, your phone number or your email address, if you will send that to us at info at christianchapel.com. That way we can be sure to get your feedback as well. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to create more space, to reach more people. And so we're going to create three new service times that will start on Sunday, September 10th. So just be watching for that. Uh, we, we really do value your feedback on that. As we've worked our way through the book of Acts, what we've talked about is how when Jesus works by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is established and the church grows. It's what we're experiencing right now at Christian Chapel. It's what churches all around the country, all around the world are continuing to experience, that everywhere the Holy Spirit is active, everywhere that Jesus is glorified, people find their place in community. And as we find our place in community, what Acts teaches us is we do not become an inward-facing, closed community, but the Christian community is always one that expands outward, always one that has its doors open, and is always doing everything it can to 
to make sure there was always room for one more person to find new life in Jesus. And so as we've worked through the stories of Acts, what we have found is they are not just descriptive stories of something that happened a long time ago in a land far away, but they are prescriptive stories of what should still be happening in the church today. And so we've seen stories of salvation, stories of healing, stories of hope. What I love about Acts, though, is it doesn't shy away from the realities of following Jesus. And what we know if we follow Jesus very long is that there will be seasons of difficulty, there will be seasons of hardship, there will be tragedies that we endure. And so today we will be in Acts, kind of the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8. It's the story of Stephen, and we're going to talk about how God comes and turns tragedy to triumph. And so if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you remember we were introduced to Stephen. He's one of the early church leaders. He's a man described as full of the Spirit, full of faith, full of faith and full of grace. He's used by God in incredible ways. He's brought in to serve in an administrative role to help the apostles as the church is growing. But we see in addition to his administrative duties, he's also someone who preaches the gospel. And as he preaches the gospel, God confirms his message with signs and wonders. And men and women and teenagers continue to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And in response to that, the religious leaders and those in power feel threatened. And so they arrest Stephen and they threaten him. A couple weeks ago, we, we observed Stephen's response to them and talked about how when we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we live with the promise of spirit-inspired speech. And so you, you read in Acts chapter 7 this beautiful response that Stephen gives to those who are accusing him. And, and then today, where we're picking it up is with the unfortunate response of those who've accused him. It's not necessarily the outcome that Stephen wanted. It's not the outcome that we would want, but it's the reality of what happened. So if you have a Bible, we'll start in Acts chapter 7, verse 54 this morning. It says, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, He fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So Stephen's story kind of explodes the idea that following Jesus will always be up and to the right. Stephen's story is a a wake-up call for the early church. It's a wake-up call for the modern church. To this point in church history, the apostles have experienced the rejection and persecution that Jesus predicted. 
Jesus told them, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Jesus told them, in this world you will have trouble. And we've seen as we've worked through those first few chapters of Acts that the apostles preach by the power of the Holy Spirit. They see signs and wonders. They see people coming to Christ by the thousands. And they have also experienced the continual persecution and rejection from, the posi- from people in positions of authority. But to this point in church history, they've always got out of it. They've been arrested, they've been imprisoned, they've been beaten, they've been threatened. That cycle has been repeated. But right up to this point, again and again and again, they've always been set free. And so even as Stephen is arrested, it's likely he has the hope of his story will end as the other stories have so far. Well, I might be beaten, I might get arrested, I might lose my freedom for a while, but ultimately I will be set free. Ultimately, I'll be able to say like the apostles to those in authority, if you decide if it's better for me to obey you or God, but I can't help but talk about what I've seen and what I've heard. This would have been Stephen's hope. It would have been his realistic expectation because that has been the only experience of the church to that point in church history. And yet Stephen's story is the first one that forces us to confront the fact that when we participate in a kingdom that believes this life is not all there is, sometimes our story doesn't end at the time or in the way that we would choose. Stephen is not set free. Stephen is drugged out of the city and dies an extremely violent death. Stephen's story is one of unjust suffering. The false witnesses who've told lies about him seem to have succeeded. It's a moment in church history where the church is really forced to stop and evaluate, is following Jesus really worth it? Can he really work good out of all things, even the worst things of the martyrdom of the first Christian believer? For you and I today, it's an opportunity for us as well to stop and evaluate that following Jesus is not the promise that life will always go up and to the right. You see, this is, this is where many of us get frustrated in our relationship with the Lord is we have bought into the idea that if I say yes to Jesus, then he should say no to every evil thing that comes against me then he should protect me from heartache. He should protect me from difficulty. He should protect me from persecution. And then when those situations come to us, we get mad at God for not keeping promises that he never made to us. Jesus' promise was in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. His promise was, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And so as the early church has to grapple through this terrible situation, so you and I have to grapple through those moments of, I'm following Jesus, I'm doing everything that he's calling me to do, I'm trying to walk and live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and my circumstances still are not what I want them to be. People who love Jesus still mourn the loss of those that they love. People who love Jesus still experience sickness and difficulty. People who love Jesus still find themselves in relationships that are broken and in positions of financial need. Following Jesus is not the promise that life will be perfect. Following Jesus is the promise that he will be with you in every season of life. 
And what we see in Stephen's story is that this promise of the Spirit-empowered life is not just the promise for when the sun is shining and everything is going how we want it to be, but the promise of the Spirit-empowered life is at your lowest moment, in your darkest hour, the Spirit continues to work through you. You see in Stephen's response, you see in the words that he speaks, these are not the natural responses of someone who's being murdered for following Jesus. You you don't naturally pray for those who are unjustly killing you. Lord, don't hold this against them, right? I know what my prayer would be in that situation, and it would be, Lord, kill them all, right? I mean, I would be praying the prayers of David, dash their teeth against the rocks, may their wives be childless, may their name be forgotten, you know, praying all those. And what's Stephen pray? He prays, Lord, don't hold this against them. Even in that moment, the power of the Holy Spirit reframes his perspective, which reframes his speech, and it reminds us that God is the one who is with us in our lowest, darkest, most tragic moments. Now, for us, we are, we are fortunate to live in a nation where these most extreme forms of persecution are not a present threat to us. Yeah, but if if you have any kind of global awareness at all, you know there are still believers around the world in this moment who are suffering and dying simply because they've said yes to Jesus. I had lunch with a a missionary yesterday who was telling me stories from North Africa of, of extremists who'd pulled up outside of a church and murdered a pastor in front of his congregation. Stories from India of people who've been kicked out of their families, out of their communities. Stories from China of those who've been banished from entire regions of the country. Stories throughout the Middle East of men and women who are giving their lives simply because they've said yes to Jesus. And again, if our faith was only rooted in this life, then those are meaningless losses. But if we believe in an eternal kingdom, if we believe in a life beyond this, if we believe in a God who not only works all things for our good and his good in this life, but through all of time, then even in tragedy, we can begin to see the hand of God at work. And so as as you find yourself this morning, maybe in some situations or circumstances you didn't ask for, maybe in some relationships you wish would turn around with some needs you wish you didn't have, my hope for us today is that the story of Stephen is a reminder to us that God is always at work to turn every tragedy into a triumph. But in that process, there's always this moment where the story begins to turn. Now, the turn in the story is, it can be so many things. It can be a moment, it can be a season, it can be an introduction, or it can be a conclusion. But the thing about the turn in the movement from tragedy to triumph is the turn is rarely discernible in the moment. You can't hardly ever point in the moment and be like, I feel like today, I feel like this day, I feel like July 16th at 9.54 a.m., I feel like right now it's turning, and this is going to be the moment I look back on in 20 years, is that's when God did it. See, the, the turn is usually imperceptible. The turn, the turn is usually only picked up with the benefit of hindsight. We'll, we'll talk in a few minutes. You probably have the ability to look back at your life in the last year or five or 10 or 20 or 40 years, and you can point to certain turns that happened where life seemed like it was headed in a terrible direction, and the Lord worked and began to turn it into this new bright day that you never saw coming. But I would almost guarantee you didn't know it was happening in the moment. And in the story of Stephen, the tragedy is Stephen's death, and the turn is incredibly unlikely. 
The turn is the introduction of a man named Saul. And when we first meet Saul, it doesn't sound like a positive turn. Saul's introduced as in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 58. It says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 8 verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing him. 8 verse 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul's introduction sounds ominous. It sounds like a threat. It sounds like further tragedies in the making. If it's a turn, it sounds like a turn from bad to worse. Saul is there approving of Stephen's murder. He aggressively starts to persecute the church, saying he goes from house to house, dragging off both men and women and putting them in prison. And Luke gives us some indication that Saul is enjoying some success as he sets out to destroy the church. But we know, if you've read the story of Acts, that what seems like a low point is a turning point. And the introduction to Saul is actually a turn in the whole story of Acts. We'll discover it in a couple weeks as we begin to review the story of Saul's actions and Saul's movement. Saul persecutes the church. He does his best to destroy the kingdom. But eventually, Jesus has enough and literally knocks Saul to the ground and calls him to become a follower. Saul becomes a follower of Jesus. We know him as Paul. He goes on to plant churches, to travel the world, to become one of the most influential men in the history of the church. He writes letters to the churches that eventually make up a significant portion of the New Testament. And yet where we're at this morning from Stephen's story and the perspective of the early church, the introduction of Saul is not a turn for the better, it's a turn for the worse. And yet what we want to understand this morning is if we want to live a spirit-empowered life, one of the gifts that the Spirit is going to give us is the ability to perceive that the lowest moment is not always the lowest moment. And that what you think is the end of the story is not always the end of the story. And that God is at work in seasons and situations, in individuals and in relationships, in ways that we cannot always perceive, but we can always trust that he is working to achieve his purposes and achieve his glory. And so this morning, my encouragement to you is in tragedy, you can trust that the turn is coming. And so, so our prayer in moments, of, if you're in a, a dark space today, and if you've got the, the prodigal child that you are pleading with the Lord to draw back to himself, if you've got the broken marriage that is on the verge of falling apart, and if you've got the financial need where you're thinking we're about to lose the house and everything else, if you've got the physical need where you've thought, I, I've exhausted all of my options and I don't see what's left. Whatever your need might be this morning, the Holy Spirit comes and gives you the faith and courage to believe that God sees you, God knows you, God has a plan for you, and he is actively working that plan. And God's plan has the ability to turn every tragedy into a triumph. And so the Holy Spirit comes to us, and he gives us the ability to stop making final judgments over temporary situations. How many times have you done it in your life where you reached a point and you were just convinced of like, well, God, I guess you're done. You're not answering my prayers anymore. You don't care about them anymore. You're not looking at that anymore. And yet time and time again, we've seen when we have been pushed past our point of faith, when we have given up all other options, God still acts and God still works. How many times have you seen an individual and you have completely written them off? 
Maybe it's that new coworker. Maybe it was a classmate. Maybe it was a student in your classroom, a boss that you worked for, a neighbor, a family member. And somewhere along the line, you just decided, I don't think even Jesus could save him at this point. They are beyond hope. They are just, they're, they're frustrating. You were done with them. You didn't want to talk to them anymore. But somewhere along the line, God got a hold of their heart, turned them around, and their story is remarkably different today. And some of you are like, I don't know who that is. Well, it was you, most likely. You were the one. If you don't know anyone, you were the one that all your family gave up on. You were the one the coworkers thought it'll be a cold day in hell when that one turns to Jesus, right? You were the one. And yet it happens again and again and again. And so what we're praying is not just, Holy Spirit, will you come and help me in my life believe that you can turn tragedy to triumph, but will you begin to give me the eyes of Jesus to see the world around me? And to see every space and every tragedy and every low point and every difficult person as an opportunity where you can come and achieve your purposes and gain the glory that you desire in the world. In every tragedy, a turn is coming. Now, if if we had time this morning, we could go around the room and, and you could tell your individual stories of this was the tragedy. And now looking back, I can see how in the middle of it, God started to turn it. You could tell the stories of the relationships that ended but opened the door to the one God had for you. You could tell the story of the infertility treatments that didn't work but opened the door to foster care and adoption that God used to build your family. You could tell the story of lost jobs, of dead dreams, of going through seasons of grief and loss and how in those spaces God began to turn the trajectory of your life in a new direction that got you to where you are today. I was thinking about Angie and I's life this week. The, the, the problem is not, can I tell a story? The problem is, which one do you tell? Because there's so many. I mean, we have stories of, of God bringing incredible financial provision in seasons of need. Stories of God bringing healing to us. Stories of God bringing salvation to friends and family members. Stories of God doing it again and again and again and again. And I don't know what it was, but, but this week as I was thinking about the, the one that, that kind of sprung right to the top of my mind was uh, about 18-ish, about 18 and a half years ago. So I was finishing my last semester of seminary in Springfield, Missouri. Angie and I had been married for a couple years. She was pregnant with our first child. And as I entered into that last semester, I was feeling all of the pressure of, I need to finish well, and I need to get a job because I have a pregnant wife. And I'm not moving in with her parents, and I'm not moving in with my dad, and I'm not moving in with my mom, and I'm not staying here in Springfield. And I had a whole, I mean, it was really just, I need a a job. I really need a job. And, And I would really love a job where I could do the things that I feel like God has called me to do and where I've spent all this money for the last five years trying to, to get ready to do it, right? And so, so we start praying, and Angie and I, we grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and as we're praying, I, I heard about this church in Wichita that needed a youth pastor, and that's kind of the, the area of ministry Angie and I were looking to, to launch into. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever been there when, when you need a job, and then you hear about a job, and you know that job was created by God for you. And, and this one clearly was. I mean, it couldn't have been better. It was, it was in Kansas, the sunflower state. Who doesn't want to live there, right? I thought, this is perfect. It's, it's, it's far enough from family, but also close to family, if you know what I mean. It, was, it just felt like that sweet little window of location. It was a, a well-respected church. It, it had a pastor who'd been there for, for decades that I knew and my family knew and had a lot of respect for. And it was just, it was going to be a very comfortable move. And, and so, so I'm sure as some of you have done, I, I put the resume together. And as I sent it out, I, I had that thought of, 
they're going to be so happy to receive this. <laughs> Say, I mean, I don't, I don't even know if they know the blessing that's coming their way. Like, we're, we're going to reach the students of Wichita for Jesus. We're going to do, it wasn't two days later, I got an email back that just said, I'm sorry, we already filled that position. We don't know why that posting was still up. I thought, you bums. Like, let's fire that secretary. Like, come on, you know, what, what are you doing? But I don't know if you've ever been there where you had your whole life planned out and two days later it all came crashing down, where you knew the job was perfect and then it turned out the employer didn't think you were perfect for them, where, where I thought they were going to celebrate the arrival of my resume and they just deleted it and never even read it. Like, they didn't check out my cool word formatting. They didn't know that I'd use the thesaurus to put in some really like ACT quality words in there to show them how smart I was. They, and I never got any of that. And then I'm about to be unemployed. I got a pregnant wife. I got it, bills. I got, and, and it's all these moments of, well, now what, Lord? And, and I know it's a, it seems insignificant now, 20 years later, of, hey, dummy, apply for another job, right? It's very clear. But then I remember in that moment just that feeling of absolute despondency of like, what are we going to do? Can we live in a homeless shelter? I don't know. What happens? What, ha- what do you do with seminary grads that are unemployed, right? I mean, I don't know. But, and, and yet, that no turned into an opportunity to keep looking. It turned into a, an invitation to a church I'd never heard of in a city I'd never visited. Turned into a, a youth pastor job at Christian Chapel. And, and now 18 years later, you still haven't got rid of us. We've just kind of grown into the carpet, right? And we're, we're just here, here, and everywhere, and always here. And yet, I can look back, and, and again, if we had time, I could tell you story after story after story of low moments and no's and disappointment and pain and frustration and anger and hurt and doubt. And I could take you back in every single one of those and show you how in those lowest moments, there was a turn happening that I could not perceive in the moment. But now, with the benefit of time, I can look back and clearly see the hand of God at work in my life. And that is the source of hope for me this morning. That's the source of hope for Angie this morning. As we're navigating some new tragedies and navigating some new lows and some new spaces we don't want to be in, some new situations we don't want to walk through, and yet we're trusting in the same way God worked before, we know he's working right now. Even if I can't see it, he's working Even if I can't feel it, I know he's working. Even if I can't observe any signs in the lives of those I'm praying for, in the situation I'm encountering, I know he's working. The story of God turning tragedy to triumph is not just the story of Stephen. It's the story of the entire church, and it's the story of all of Scripture. Again and again and again, God's people find themselves in places they don't want to be, and God works miracles of deliverance, of healing, of provision, of salvation, over and over and over again. And what you find is every way and every time the enemy attacks, God is there and at work to begin to turn that story. And we we just sang it a little bit ago, what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. He builds his kingdom, he preserves his people, and in Stephen's story, even in death, God uses that event to mark a man named Saul who will become one of the primary voices of the church. And so as God's people, our hope is not just that God will use our life. Our hope is that God will use our death as well. And that every season 
And in every situation, the kingdom will grow as God works in us and through us. And this is what we see in Stephen's story. His tragedy begins the turn with the arrival of Saul. And then the the triumph is kind of announced in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, even if maybe it doesn't quite sound like it at first. It says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, it sounds like another negative. It doesn't sound like the turning point of the story, but the, the first sentence in triumph that comes on the heels of Stephen's tragic death includes the persecution and scattering of the church. But it's even though it's kind of played in a minor key, it's still a triumphal note. Because it's the moment where the church begins to move from a group of people in Jerusalem that others come to see and others seek out and visit to a movement that expands beyond Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. Once again, what the enemy intends for evil, God uses for good. Where the enemy comes and says, you know, that that fire of Christianity is burning bright and strong and growing fast in Jerusalem. And so the enemy's attempt is to come and, and stamp out that fire. But as he stamps it, all he does is spread the embers farther and faster. And th- there's a, a beautiful uh, object lesson that I, I wish I could have done for you this morning. But we would have burned the church down. But you never would have forgot it. And I wouldn't have either. But I, I don't know if any of you, uh, any, anybody ever poured water on a grease fire? Just, I mean, you can admit it. This is a safe space. We won't judge you. There's no insurance adjusters here so, that we know of. Um, but but if, if you've never done that, don't, don't go home and do it. It's, it's not good. But go home and, and maybe look up on YouTube, pouring water on a grease fire. And, and what you'll find is, is, is there's, you know, typically it's a, a firefighter who's doing it, a fire department, some kind of awareness campaign. And they've got these special little setups. And so they'll do the grease fire on the stove. And then they've got the long pole with a little, like, 10-ounce cup of water. And what happens when you pour that water on a grease fire is it just explodes and expands in some incredible ways. I mean, just so, so you'll, as you see it, you'll understand why we couldn't do that this morning. But, but, but it provides such a great picture of what's happening in Acts chapter 8. That, that grease fire of the early church is just blazing. And it's blazing to the point that it's drawing people in from all over Jerusalem. It's making inroads into every segment of society. And the, the reaction of the religious leaders and those in power is, hey, maybe if we kill one of them, they'll finally stop. But Stephen's death is just the water on the grease fire. And it begins to explode and expand all over the known world at the time. Over the coming weeks, we'll begin to see what that expansion means as the gospel moves into Samaria and the people that had long been overlooked and rejected begin to follow Jesus and receive the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say you and I sit here today worshiping Jesus because the church was expelled from Jerusalem. Christianity was never meant to be a system where everyone comes to a central location to experience God, but was always meant to be a system where everyone everywhere has full access to God through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. And it took a little bit of a kick in the pants to get the church out of their comfort zones and into new places. And for you and I, oftentimes those seasons of tragedy and those turns that God are is creating, he's using them to get us from where we're comfortable to where he wants us to be. 
And so what we see in the early church is the same thing that we will observe in our life. If you're going to go from tragedy to triumph, there's always going to be an element of a move involved. You have to move. And so for the early church, it's a a very real move. They leave their homes. They leave their jobs. Some of them leave their extended families. They leave the only land they've ever known. And they begin to live and work in new places. And we don't want to just brush past that because it would have been just as difficult for them then as that would be for us now. They had to find new places to live. They had to find new jobs to work. They had to find new setups for their their spouses and their children. They had to adapt to new cultures and customs. They had to learn new languages in some of the places that they went to. They had to figure out, would, would their trade translate into this new place or do they need to do something else? Some of them were leaving family farms that they lived on for generations and generations. They they were being cast out into a world that they did not know and trusting that when they landed, God would provide. And so for us today, as God begins to call us from tragedy to triumph, for many of us, there's going to be a move. Sometimes it is a physical move. Sometimes you you will move from where you live now to where God is calling you to live. You'll move from one city to another. You'll move from one job to another. You'll move from one degree program to another. There'll be actual moves. Sometimes those moves are are moves of relationship. As God begins to turn us from tragedy to triumph, sometimes there are relationships that have to end because they're not honoring the Lord. There are relationships that have to be completely cut off because they are only intent on destroying us. Sometimes there are new relationships that have to begin. There are new spaces we have to enter into. Sometimes it's not a physical move. Sometimes it's a a spiritual move. It's a move from a a life of stinginess to a life of generosity. It's a move from a, a life of doubt and fear to a life of faith and confidence. It's a move from what is comfortable and known into the new spaces God is calling us to. See, that that turn, when you look back on it in your life, that that turn will almost always involve some type of move. A shift of mind or a shift of location, but something is going to change. And I believe this morning there are some of us that that we're contemplating it. We sense God calling us to, to trust him in ways we've never trusted him before. We sense him calling us into new experiences of forgiveness, new experiences of faith, new experiences of trusting him to lead us and guide us. New opportunities to know that he is the God who provides, that he is the one who opens doors, that he is the one who directs and leads. He's the one who exchanges our mourning for joy. He's the one who lifts the cloud of depression. He's the one who comes and brings peace in the middle of the storm. And and in those spaces, he's the one who speaks and calls us to begin to move in the direction he's calling us to. And so my encouragement to you today is if you find yourself in a position where you you feel like you're moving and you're not real sure where you're going to land, I believe this is the season that you're going to look back on. That's when God was redirecting. That's when God was showing me where we were supposed to be. That's when God was showing me what we were supposed to do. And you will find, as we see in the story of the early church, that when he directs, he provides, and he achieves his purposes. And he does it in incredible ways. If you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us this morning. I know some of us today, we find ourselves in moments of tragedy, facing situations we didn't ask for and we wouldn't wish on anyone else. 
If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes with me, I want to begin to lead us in a few prayers. If you find yourself in, in those kind of tragic circumstances, today we believe God sees you and he knows you. You do not have to deny your pain. You do not have to hide your weakness. You can fully feel and admit the place of life that you're in right now. And in that space of tragedy, you can believe two things. God is with you and God is working. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't turned his ear away from you. He is listening to your cry this morning and he is actively working to achieve his purposes in these dark nights of the soul that you're walking through. And so if you're in a season of tragedy, I hope you know it's real and it's painful, but it's not where you're going to stay. Where you are is not where you will always be. God is working and God is active. And so as you recognize that reality, we're gonna begin to pray prayers of faith and prayers of triumph, prayers that God will work and move. And if if that's the space you need God to work in your life this morning, I wanna invite you, just raise your hand where you are as an act of faith, an act of surrender. And we're gonna begin to pray those. My hands are up with you. There are spaces I'm trusting and needing God to move. So Jesus, we come to you today. And we believe that you are the God who turns tragedy to triumph. We believe you're the God who can turn every situation for our good and for your glory. We believe you see every one of us. You know us by name and you know the details of our situation. So Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with loss, with isolation, with loneliness. Those who feel a pit of despair in their heart and their mind as they've never known. Lord, those who are suffering through the grief of losing those that they love, those who are suffering physically from sickness and from injury, those who are suffering financially as they're longing for provision. Today in our tragedy, Lord, we declare that you know us, you are for us, and you are working in this situation. We believe that you know our name. We believe you know the number of hairs on our head. We believe you know the details of our situation. And we believe you are already turning our story from tragedy to triumph. We believe you are achieving your purposes and you are building your kingdom. And so Jesus, in this moment, I ask, will you release your gifts of faith? Will you release your miraculous working power? Will you release gifts of healing and provision? Will you begin to give knowledge and discernment? Holy Spirit, will you come and give us vision to see our situation from your perspective, to find a sense of deep peace and understanding that you are at work and to believe that the stories of scripture provide the framework through which we see our situations today. We believe you're the God who is active. We believe you're a God who is working. We believe, Holy Spirit, that you are coming in personal and powerful ways to transform our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.